When I was a young high school troll, the lefty teachers and students and I just shaded each other through nerdy little turf wars. The campus paper, which I ran, the diversity board, which they ran, and so on and so forth. I remember once feeling a twinge of guilt publishing a particularly provocative editorial in the paper. 17-year-old me questioned whether it was an abuse of my platform. Well, the Parkland kids have taken it to another universe, taking their feuds to millions on Twitter, CNN, and now their new battleground, Fox News. Have a goal. Have a purpose. Use your voice for good. Sure. But the Gossip Girl-style antics, sans the fabulous fashion, need to chill. And even more importantly, adults need to start acting like adults and stop letting teenagers who just went through a massively traumatic ordeal drown out their problems in the limelight. I'm Tiana Lowe. I'm Avery Hogarth, and this is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. That is, of course, only if you're of age and not a teenager. After a week of adults first kids, you'll need it. Welcome back to the political pregame, everyone. Quite honestly, we it has been a long week for us, and we could not come up with any funny drink puns. Uh, so after this stressful week, we are just sitting in my room drinking mimosas on a Friday morning. However, that being said, let's get right into it. This week, we'll be talking about uh, March for Our Lives and the teenagers involved in that. We'll be talking about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, as well as the Roseanne revival. So... Obviously, if you've been paying attention to the media to at least any degree, you know that there have been a number of Parkland survivors that have come forward as activists leading the movement for gun reform, uh, leading the talks and speeches at March for Your Lives. A few of the prominent figures have been David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, but they haven't stepped into the spotlight without major criticisms from the media. Some potentially warranted, some not. However, whenever it is an adult criticizing a teenager, people like to vilify that to the quickest degree. And you've seen that this week on Laura Ingram's show when she, we can get into it later if it was warranted or not, when she called out David Hogg for the schools that he had been denied from, and that resulted in a boycott of advertisers from her show. So, Tiana, I would like your take on this. What do you think should have been the direct course of action? Okay, so if we go back to high school mode, which was not that long ago for the two of us. So, David Hogg, uh, he had good GPA, eh, mediocre SAT score, <laughs> got rejected from uh, a couple of UCs and got into uh, Florida Atlantic University, Cal Poly, Cal State, San Marcos. So the fact that we're even having this conversation is ridiculous. I mean, he is the one who put it out there, but I, I do think that it's an insane conversation to even be having. Let me just say, Cal Poly is a great school. UCs are hard to get into, and I'm sorry, but you need a much better GPA than when he had to get into the UCs that he was applying to. I think, like, and especially, you know, I mean, California is a very competitive school, so I mean... So to even, especially adults, people who haven't been applying to schools, who people who haven't applied to college in the last 30 years kind of should take a step back and realize it is a lot more different. I mean, when you talk to our parents, like, what, they applied to, like, one, two schools, maybe three. And I applied, also, to, I think I applied to, like, ten So or many people are seeking post-secondary education yeah. compared to beforehand. Yeah, so. I mean, unfortunately, and, I mean, this is a separate conversation, but, I mean, the federal government is directly responsible for making the bachelor's degree the new high school diploma. Anyway, but the point that we're having this conversation is asinine. The fact that we now have essentially three major forces, CNN, Fox News, and David Hogg all at war 
over GPAs, SAT scores, and college admissions is, quite frankly, disgusting. So, okay, so Laura Ingram was in the wrong to say what she said. A, an adult with a, with a primetime platform on the biggest cable news channel in the country should not stoop down to the level of a child. That being said, she did apologize. And, I mean, she apologized after David Hogg threatened her advertisers. But the fact that David Hogg then comes out and says, no, it's not enough, just shows how mean and childish and sophomoric this entire debate has been. Has become. Well, you have to wonder, too, if the conversation is supposed to focus around gun reform, why is he continuing to circle the conversation back to this guy? It's not Ingram about him. He's not a celebrity. Right? So if, if that's the case and you were offended by these comments, I think it's okay for David to express some outrage on Twitter or wherever it may be. However, once the apology is made, settle it. Move on. Let's keep the rhetoric pertinent to what it's supposed to be about. And so this just distracts from everything. I mean, it's kind of the way the media has gone recently with a lot of things. I mean, last week we talked about Stormy Daniels and how that should have been a one-week news cycle and it's turned yeah. into a two-month news cycle. Why are we continuing to feed this? Um, well, it's interesting. So these uh, Parkland survivors and the activists that have come forward, they are criticizing all of these officials in elected office and, and politicians, yet does that warrant them to be susceptible to criticism is the main question, or are they untouchable because, in fact, they are teenagers? However, I think it's twofold. I think you can see it from both sides, and it's circumstantial. So when you're deciding to step out on this huge platform and call people out by name and... And tell sitting senators that they have blood on their hands... If you want to do that because you believe that's what's right, I mean, that's your civic liberty. Like, that's totally okay with me. I have no issue with these activists coming forward and speaking their minds on, on gun reform because they did experience an event that hit very close to home for them. However, if you are going to step into the big leagues, step into the adult realm and criticize the adults, you have to be willing to have your views challenged as well. The same way when we, Tiana and I, when we engage in a conversation or more of like a heated discussion or argument, if I'm criticizing one of Tiana's views or judgments or standpoints, I have to be willing for her to come back at me just as hard and criticize where I'm coming from. And I think there's a double standard in that regard. Yeah. No, and I mean, it's, it, it is a classic case of if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. So David Hogg has over half a million Twitter followers at this point. I have 5,000. And... I get daily people just in my DMs or people responding to my tweets with profanity, crude statements, mean stuff, sometimes things that then verge on threatening, which I report, obviously. I cannot imagine how much David Hogg is getting. And obviously, a lot of that will just be pure trollery, and pure trollery you should just ignore. But a lot, but some of it's just valid criticism. If you're going to... He, he cannot have it both ways. He cannot do the clown nose on, clown nose off routine. He yep. can't pull the listen to me because I'm talking about my trauma, but also listen to me for policy prescriptions. But also you cannot criticize those policy prescriptions because I'm just a trauma victim. You cannot pull both of those cards. And that's what politics is. Politics is presenting your platform and having that challenged. And so I think they're coming to realize that very quickly. However, one thing that I would criticize other people in the media for and just other adults or, you know, people on Twitter and other pundits is I would be weary to come so quick to their defense 
depending on what issues. If it's if it's a reporter or you know someone like a Laura Ingram, although let's keep her statements about his college acceptances out of the question. If she just criticized where he was coming from on a gun control standpoint and the application of such, because uh, one of the one of the uh, girls that actually passed away in the Parkland shooting, her father has become quite outspoken. It's, he it's Petty, right? Um, Ryan Petty, I think. I know the daughter's name was Meadow Pollock, so okay. it's uh, her father. And so he actually met with President Trump in the White House and was talking about, in wake of the Parkland shooting, was talking about uh, different policy prescriptions and, and how to remedy the situation yeah. and make sure it never happens again. He has taken the total opposite route. He says he doesn't mind the children coming forward. However, he disagrees with their policy prescriptions. His policy prescription is actually to have entering a school much like you would be uh, for entering an airport, going through security checkpoints that way, making sure gunmen can't get in. That's his stance. And he has criticized the stances of these Parkland activists. That shouldn't be something that they are immune from. No, it shouldn't. And especially, I mean, if you are... Any sort of public spotlight is both a privilege and a responsibility. It's, when you have that many Twitter followers, and when you have this much of a reach, and when CNN is going to say stuff like Alison Camerota said, what kind of dumbass colleges don't want you? When you have people rallying behind you like this, any of this platform we basically have, you're like, nightly anchor news seat warmed up for you. You need to be ready for the heat. It's going to come. And I... I just think that the whole playing it both ways and also just the total amount of contradiction. David Hogg tweeted out, focus less on fear and more on facts. Then we can save lives in this country together. And he's the one who said that Marco Rubio owes every child a dollar five cents because that's how much money, basically, the NRA divided by the however many million children in the public school system in Florida are worth. This is, I mean, that's demagoguery of the highest form. This is, it's pretty disgusting rhetoric. And honestly, Marco Rubio, for all his flaws, I disagree with him on like um, on a lot of his family planning uh, policies, although I think that he's a good person. Um, for, he was willing to go out on the CNN stage, know that the deck was completely stacked against him, know that, it was basically going to be him taking a beating, uh, Sheriff Israel openly lying, and he was willing to do it because he felt that that's what he owed his constituents. Standing on a stage, letting them have their cathartic moment, and trying to engage in a real policy discussion. And yet, at the March for Our Lives over the weekend, Avery and I actually, we were just by chance downtown and we saw some of the signs. I mean, the amount of First of all, anti-Catholic rhetoric and imagery, but also just just plain demagoguery against Marco Rubio. Like, if you're going to spend that political capital on Marco Rubio, are you guys actually surprised that we got Donald Trump? Oh, are we actually surprised that we got someone who was more concerned with feeding red meat to his own base and using overblown and crude language? Because quite frankly, that's exactly what these Parkland activists are doing. And and again, I don't want to lump them all in together. But the ones who are engaging in this demagoguery, not to use the most trite and overused phrase of all time, but this is how we got Trump. Yeah, well, I think people need to keep in mind when they are going to criticize anyone in politics uh, on, on any topic whatsoever, they need to keep in mind the difference between criticizing someone's policy prescriptions 
criticizing someone's platform, uh, potentially even their judgment, versus criticizing someone's morals, someone's character, someone's intrinsic factors. Those are two, those are two very different lines to walk. And so I think there has been an overprotection of these teenagers that have stepped forward because any criticism whatsoever um, is therefore not permitted in the eyes of a lot of the media, especially left-wing media, and I can call that out. Um, However, we need to understand when to speak out and when something is unwarranted, like politicians calling Emma Gonzalez uh, very awful names just for her, you know, physical appearance and characteristics versus politicians calling out why they don't believe the rhetoric the prescriptions in banning all assault rifles or why they don't believe in you know not taking money from the nra those are two very different conversations but we can't be vilifying people just for criticism we need to actually ask more of ourselves and understand if that criticism is warranted or not yeah and and i think it's funny because kyle kashiv who is another parkland student who has been has probably been doing more proactive work than any of them he's met with He's met with everyone from Chuck Schumer to Marco Rubio to Donald Trump to Melania Trump. I mean, he's uh, to Nancy Pelosi. This is someone who's met with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. He is the conservative voice that has come forward from the Parkland shooting. Yes. And admittedly, he's conservative. But the point is, he's still trying to meet with people from the other side to actually come to a conclusion. And he is partially responsible for, um, for the Stop School Violence Act moving forward because he's actually been so proactive. And... Guess how many times CNN has had him on the network? No, just guess. Yes, if you guess zero, then you would be correct. And he, he quote tweeted the clip of, of Alison Camerota saying that about David Hogg. 24-7 cheerleaders. It must feel kind of cool. My well, God. This I, is I, the I, issue yeah. with media. Like, we need to have, or these big companies and these big news stations need to have people on that don't necessarily represent the biased view, yeah. view that they Get out are the looking to portray. Chamber. Like, have this man or this boy on your show to portray the image of someone who may be a Republican or maybe a conservative uh, survivor of the Parkland shooting. And that's something that can be very important and I think is important for your audience to witness. And so when the those on the left from the Parkland shooting are being held in this amazing, fantastic spotlight on CNN they are almost without flaws when that's not the case. And, like, I, I referenced Gossip Girl earlier, but that's honestly what it feels like. It, like, this feels like... And, again, these are 17-year-olds... These, these are anywhere between 14 and 18-year-olds who just went through a very traumatic event. I understand that they might succumb to baser instincts, to more just wanting to engage in catharsis. I understand that. That is totally, it makes sense. However, the adults in the room need to step up. They, they cannot devolve down to, like, the Blair Waldorf level. The one thing I don't agree with, though, is the movement to silence these kids. Everyone deserves to have a voice. There's people saying, why are they even talking about politics? They couldn't possibly have a clue about what's going on. They don't even get to vote. Any movement to silence someone in a democratic society is just so counterintuitive and so counterproductive. I do not criticize these teenagers for coming out and being angry and wanting to have their voices heard and wanting to affect change. 
The only thing that I do criticize is when it gets petty. When you see yeah. them criticizing anchors on CNN or Fox or wherever it may be, and when you see those anchors doing that in return at a petty, low-life level. I don't criticize what they're doing. I don't criticize their actions. I have my own, I guess, internal questions about their messaging and strategy and how that could really be effective. But I don't think that they should be silenced. And I also think that this kind of patronizing rhetoric towards them saying they couldn't possibly know what's going on is a little aggressive. Obviously, of course, you know, if I look back to when I was that age, I thought I knew everything when I really didn't. And there is some of that. And there there is weight to that statement and, and that tone. However, at the same time, these are kids that, let's face it, have done a remarkable job at mobilizing a movement and mobilizing a strategy that they really believe in and that many people have gotten behind. I mean, gosh, I tried to, I tried to tweet for like a week. I'm not, I know I'm not too active on my Twitter. I have about 300 followers. I think it's pretty amazing that these kids have been able to get such a following and inspire so many people to come out in March. However, we also need to understand and kind of need to use a more, I guess, critical reasoning in understanding where we think we're getting with this. And I think the message has been lost and it's rather ambiguous at this point. No, but I mean, but I guess all I would say is about building the following and all that. To what end? I think that the intention and the what the end goal is matters a lot. Because if you can... Oh, so much of this anger feels misguided in the sense that a lot of the policy prescriptions that have been proposed, other than the Brett Stevens repeal of the Second Amendment prescription would not necessarily have done that much. However, you have, so Zachary Cruz, um, he was able to make it onto, onto the MSD campus, proving that I don't know what is happening in Parkland. I don't know what are the cops doing. I don't know. Like they found out that there was a cop literally sleeping. I think it was during the shooting or no, 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 no. When, um, when, uh, this person, strolled onto campus there was no security for these kids if i went to the school i would be absolutely livid at the broward county sheriff who is a complete dereliction of duty it's i mean quite frankly it's disgusting and i understand it's easy just to say the guns are the problem you know i mean that's a very visceral image but the system failed it was the imposition of the law it was the law being exacted incorrectly that failed and quite frankly it's it's insane how how celebrity-centered this debate has become. Like, you have in, um, I forget what state it was, but Stephen Clark, he, it was in Sacramento. So in Sacramento, California, Stephen Clark was killed by a cop for having an iPhone. And this is something that, at the, at the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement, people should have and would have been all over because the idea that cops escalate situations with this presumed sense of guilt, knowing that they have to act in a way in which they weigh the probability or the likelihood of someone ending their lives rather than just acting on impulse the way you would, as David French calls it, in a war zone. The fact that none of the Parkland kids are talking about this, and this is a clear display of, I mean... Why hasn't March for Our Lives incorporated Black Lives Matter? Is and like, my question. And, and, and I think that Black Lives Matter is a movement... It, there are some parts that are extremely valid and I stand totally behind. And there are some parts that I feel are un or, or, are race baiting to not a good end. And some of the cases, like when you have cases like Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot, 
probably did not happen from a forensic perspective, you know? But, I mean, you do have cases of the police acting outside of their bounds. And I just don't understand. That is a form of gun violence. And that has more to do with with regulating the police and enforcing federal body cams and taking a bunch of proactive measures to make it so everyone can keep both their civil liberties and their civil rights. Yet the fact that I think, I think it's very telling that, that the Parkland students and that this whole movement has been dangerously quiet about this. My question or concern, I guess, would be is, and I mean, we talked about this in regards to the Women's March and, Tiana, your criticisms of the Women's March for not necessarily having a singular, succinct purpose. My question for the March for Our Lives is, what do you look to achieve and at what level? Because you say you want gun reform, but what does that mean? Because gun reform can come in a lot of ways. That could come in the form of we don't want any guns in America, period. That could come in the form of banning bump stocks, raising the minimum age requirements, so many different things. But when you're just marching for gun reform, what does that do? In my opinion, I would like people and, and the organizers of this to get behind one policy prescription, one succinct almost bill if they were to put it on the table of what they want out of this. So if that's ban on all assault rifles and for any other weapon, raising the minimum age to purchase and having more comprehensive background checks and maybe even having like a mental illness background check, sure, then march for that. And that is something that, in my opinion, everyone's going to be able to understand. People can either get on board with that or not. But when you're saying march for our lives, what does that mean? Because in my opinion, you know, we've been like we've been talking about mass shootings so much in the past few months and they are so absolutely devastating but so is everything that's been surrounding the black lives matter movement in police violence to a disproportionate amount against african american people and the use of um guns lethally so it's the same thing with the Women's March and the criticisms that the Women's March has for not including all women, not including maybe trans women or women of color or anyone in between. I think if you're going to talk about gun reform, you need to cover everyone and you need to understand exactly what you're marching for. Because if you're only trying to stop school shootings, that's difficult because you're marginalizing so many other people that have been affected by gun violence. I mean, it's... I think the fact is this, this conversation, not our conversation, but the national conversation has devolved down into such a childish level. And the powers that be, I mean, when you think about it, the media, they are a cultural gatekeeper of society. The same way universities are cultural gatekeepers of society. The same way artists, writers, all cultural gatekeepers of society. That we've let this conversation, I don't know, devolve so quickly is... It's disheartening. It's disheartening, and it just... I, I, I know that... I know that saying, like, goal-oriented marches are the only ones that work makes me sound a little bit curmudgeonly, but I think that this is a, is a, is a shining example of what happens, you know, when that, when that is not the case. And, I mean, I guess it's time to move on to the next outrage. But we will obviously see what happens in the weeks to come. I, I don't doubt that... Um the teenagers from Parkland are going to be going anywhere, and, and nor should they be. However, I would just, obviously, to, to put an end note on this, I would like to see everyone 
understand criticism and, and not be so outraged by it and just look at everything with more of a discerning lens. But speaking of discerning lenses, the Zuck is fu- oh, I'm not going to finish that thought, but you know, he's, you know what, um, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> golden boy, uh, Aaron Zorkin muse, uh, he is not really the soup du jour of everyone today. So he, um, so Mark Zuckerberg is under fire because of Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is this sort of data analysis, data aggregation group that's available for hire, mainly for political purposes. It's owned by the SCL Group, which is a British company, uh, allegedly funded in part by uh, the Mercer family, if you recall. Rebecca Mercer was one of Steve Bannon, Malia Yiannopoulos' main patrons, major stakeholder in Breitbart News. So Cambridge Analytica is getting in trouble because it's they're, they've been accused of a data breach to push information or to push ads, fake news, whatever on Facebook to sway the election on Donald Trump's behalf. Now, you can argue whether or not you support or are not in support of using that. But first of all, the framing of this entire conversation is wrong. So it's wrong because Cambridge Analytica had it wasn't it wasn't a data breach. It wasn't like they hacked. This is not the WikiLeaks scenario in which WikiLeaks was able to hack into DNC servers to get DNC emails. This is information that Cambridge Analytica legally had, even if you want to contest it for its ethics. However, this conversation really reveals how much people don't even understand Facebook as a whole. Everyone's talking about, but like, where's your commitment to the client? Where's your commitment to the client? There's no such thing as a free lunch. When you use Facebook, you are the product. You're not the consumer. You're giving away your data for free. You're using it to send messages, you're using it to build connections, you're using it to take quizzes, you're using it to sign into apps, you're using it to sign into location services. Have you ever scrolled down your Facebook feed and seen an ad for something that you were discussing with your phone present, even if it wasn't recording? Creepy. Yes, it, it's, it's, it's creepy, but Facebook knows this. So Facebook for years has built its entire business model on selling your information to advertisers. And every time you check one of the little terms and condition boxes, that means that you no longer own the information that you're giving to them. That's why I want to start a movement. Let's get a kickback, Facebook. Just give me a royalty. A march against info. Facebook. Oh, no. Let's... <laughs> no. So, okay. There are a number of things you can do, and I think this is actually important. This is not a political point, but this is just in terms of your data. I would encourage you all to go into your Facebook settings and make sure to restrict your permissions. On your phone, shut off your microphone on your Facebook app. Only leave your microphone on if you ever use Messenger to but make calls. But are people going to use Tinder and Bumble because you have to sign in with Facebook? I mean, it depends on how Dating much information. It depends on how much information you are willing to relinquish, and that matters. So the whole thing with Cambridge Analytica is they did nothing wrong. They just built into the model. And so you know, in 2014, Mark Zuckerberg was uh, giving Tim Cook at Apple a lot of flack for saying your product is so expensive. Your product is elitist. I just want to connect people. I just want to make connections. And sure, I'm not saying that everything that Facebook does is bad. I think that the ability for people in third world countries and first world countries to connect, to have access to data, to have access to this social network, that obviously removes a lot of barriers to entry for a lot of different markets. That's a good thing. However, nothing is free. Everything is profit-motivated. And, um, and I think this whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, the only reason why it's happening is because 
the media and the Democrats are mad that Trump won the election and they're looking to find any scapegoat because, you know, the whole Russia thing isn't seeming to work out. The sexism argument didn't really work that well either. So now they're trying the Facebook argument. And that's why you see this major backlash. However, just because it's a partisan backlash doesn't mean that it's wrong. Well, just the fundamental point here is it wasn't illegal. So, and, And we all signed up for it. So if you have a Facebook account, which majority of Americans do and majority of people um, in first world countries with internet access do across the world, then how angry can you really be and how warranted is this even as a news story? This kind of obviously just plays into, I guess, my disillusionment with the media that has been evolving within the past two years just with running these stories, which serve to what just stir the pot politically and don't really make a lot of sense and don't really have any merit to them and so i think this is almost this this works in counter effect to what left-wing media wants to have happen in that this you know pokes holes in in trump and the russia investigation if anything it just dilutes it let's talk about the hardcore facts that we have spend more time on the Mueller investigation. There has been revelations with that recently, or not revelations, but there's been news about that. But instead, we've been running this story this week, um, you know, over anything else. And again, the media has to be discerning in what they choose to put out there. And again, I don't really think this was the best choice. No, I mean, it's, it's this inane, rather than just admit Hillary Clinton was the most uniquely disliked worst candidates in modern American political history, rather than just admit that and say, okay, let's dump Hillary, we're going to try a new strategy and move on because Trump clearly is sabotaging himself. Democrats need to just relitigate 2016 over and over and over again. And again, attack Facebook on wake up the consumer to be a more cognizant actor in their own decisions. But just to say that, oh my God, the whole the only reason why Trump won was because of Cambridge Analytica, and thus now he must crack down, and thus we need regulatory reform. I don't know. It's, well, it's asinine. It's interesting with all of, I guess, the praise the Democratic Party, or maybe even on the counter side, the the fear instilled in the Republican Party recently um, in regards to you know, this traction apparently that the Democrats are gaining and gaining all of these seats in special elections and whatnot. It'll be interesting for me to see what actually comes to fruition in 2018 as well as 2020, because I know I've I've with working on a political campaign, I have talked to a lot of people, a lot of Democrats, a lot of people who are not establishment Democrats, not the Schumers or Pelosi's that are having a really difficult time in staying in ties with the Democratic Party because they see in wake of 2016 so many intrinsic changes to the party that should have been made and almost the complete opposite of that in in just going with the status quo and still status quo and still continuing to talk about the 2016 election and almost be sore losers in a way and I know in California at least from what I've witnessed from working on a more progressive campaign there is a huge progressive movement that I'm witnessing in this state on the rise. And it'll be interesting. Uh, It's almost, I would call it the fourth party of America. I mean, you have third party, which is usually a libertarian candidate, but 
this fourth party it are people and and politicians and usually outsider politicians those who don't really have a previous career in politics that are getting into it because they're Longtime Democrats might be lawyers, other prominent businessmen, but they are just people who cannot get on board with this almost insane approach of trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And so going into 2018 and more importantly going into 2020, it'll be interesting to see this rise of Bernie-esque progressive candidates because I think the failings of the Democratic Party at its core and the Schumers and Pelosi's and their, their unwillingness to change and adapt has resulted in a further polarization and from people having to, instead of just adapting to a new democratic agenda and a new democratic strategy, has forced many individuals who were kind of on the fringe to go farther away, just off the fringe, off the map altogether, totally left wing, in order to kind of run on their own platform and agenda separate from the Democratic Party. And, and we're seeing that in California. We've seen that with the Senate race. Basically, all of the candidates in the California Senate race, as of now, leading up until the June 5th primary, are running on a completely progressive platform, except for Feinstein, of yeah. course. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard left push. And I mean, I think that it, it's it's testament to how polarized our times are. And also the fact that Democrats view this as a turnout election. They aren't trying to win over anyone in the center. They are strictly trying to, to turn out. Which makes absolutely no sense to me. Because yeah. in my opinion, those that are in the center, if the Democrats do not decide to reach across and grab them and bring them with them, they will not willingly go to the left side. They will go to the right side. Because at the end of the day, if they don't feel represented and they don't feel... Yeah. At the end of the day, when the average American is driving home on the highway from work on their commute, they aren't thinking about how are we going to solve climate change? How are we going to solve immigration? They're thinking about how am I going to put my th kids through college? How am I going to pay off my mortgage? How am I going to keep my job? They're thinking about their finances because first and foremost, you need to protect yourself. And so if the Democrats aren't offering them something and appealing to those moderates and reaching across those moderates who might be totally with the Democrats on social issues, if they're not reaching across to grab them and making them feel included and secure, then in my opinion, of course they're going to go right. Because yeah. at least at the end of the day, they have the security in knowing that they're okay in terms of their finances and financial security. And that's what's most important to a lot of yeah. Americans, and it would be most important to me too. Yeah, no, and, and, and I will tell you this. So obviously, in a normal election cycle, the incumbent president always has the better chance of winning. And this is by no means a normal election cycle because Trump is such a unique candidate. However, I know a lot of people who personally detest the president, thinks that he, thinks the accusations of sexual assaults levied against him are very credible, think that he's immoral, think, think the worst things about him. And they would hold their nose and vote for him in 2020 if they thought that whoever was next going to be president was going to thrust single payer down their throats or was going to thrust some, it was going to thrust massive tax increases down their throats. You know, if they were going to run on this on this hard left agenda, they would hold their noses. Because Trump, while he may be personally unpalatable for some people, and obviously he appeals personally and ardently to a great deal of the country, but those people who dislike him on a personal level, I think that if Democrats manage to screw this up and run someone bad enough, he could win again. Yeah, and well, to be honest, it would be understandable. And a lot of people did that in 2016 when they voted yeah. for Trump. 
It was, it's it, not, it was just not voting. It was not voting for Trump. It was voting against Hillary. And that's why the polls necessarily weren't accurate because people weren't reporting or necessarily outspoken that they were voting for Trump because they knew the negative connotations that came along with that socially in regards to just how he is viewed as a person. But yet, when they go to the polling booth and can anonymously, anonymously fill out a election card, they check the box for Trump. Yeah. And that's because they did not feel secure with Hillary and they did not feel secure with the Democratic Party. So instead of the Democrats banking on all of these people who are so reliant on social welfare programs, Democrats also need to throw a bone to those who aren't reliant on those programs and those who aren't Hollywood celebrities, which they know that they have for the most part. They need to throw a bone to the average working day person. And Democrats have always praised themselves as the party of the working man, but the, the farther left they move, honestly, the farther they're moving away from that. This took a, a turn that I was not expecting, but it does foray into our next topic. On the, on the topic of working men and women, Roseanne is back. So, not at all related to any of this Facebook nonsense. So, Roseanne, the TV show that went off the air when I was a baby, is back. Because apparently it's the era of revivals, you know? Like, I mean, everything that's old is now new again. So... Roseanne, the revival, is notable for a couple of reasons. One, it had absolutely massive ratings. 18.1 million viewers, and it had two blocks, and the second block was rated higher than the first block, and that is saying something. It's one of the highest rated primetime comedies in the last four years, I believe, and this is mainly notable not only because Roseanne hasn't been a thing in two decades, But also because Roseanne Barr, in real life, and Roseanne Connor, the main character, is, they are both Trump supporters. Now, it's it's not quite straightforward. The show doesn't make it so that way. It's not that everyone is a Trump supporter. So So the first episode opens, and it's Roseanne and her sister fighting over the 2016 election. It's supposed to be the first time that they've talked since the election. And there's a punchline to, like, the end of this interaction that I won't reveal in case if you haven't seen it. But the whole point is that it's not strictly vilifying any which side. People are interpreting this. I think everyone is sort of going overboard on this. Um, So you have, on the right, a lot of people super eager about, oh my goodness, this means that, that Tim Allen's Last Man Standing is going to be renewed, that, um that there's finally a place again for a for a Trump-oriented voice or for a conservative voice in the creative media. But um but I don't think it's so straightforward. So for one thing, Rose this is a point that um that I know Ben Shapiro pontificated on a little bit earlier this week. Roseanne is very centered around the economy. Over, in when Roseanne was a show in the 80s and in the 90s, it was it it was never about cultural mores, Christian mores, things that represent the more, like, evangelical conservative wing of the Republican Party. And it was solely about the economy. She's supposed to be this blue-collar worker. And I think that's relevant now. And Trump, and this is where, I think that it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. So you have some people in the country who voted for Trump for economic reasons. And you have a lot of the social phenomenons that are going on related to Trumpism, if that's a thing, or Trump's following, that I think are directly related to those economic consequences. I think a lot of people are anti-immigration for tribalist reasons, 
But I think more of those people only feel that tribalism because they feel like they've been sidelined by the in, by an influx of immigrants. I mean, from an economic perspective, this is probably wrong, considering 70% of all manufacturing jobs that have been lost have not been lost to immigration. They've not been lost to exporting industries out, outside of the U.S. 70% have been lost to advances in technology. So, I mean, like, the anti-immigrant animus um, levied by a small portion of the country is somewhat unfounded for economic reasons. However, I do think it is notable at all that... <laughs> I think it's less about how pro or anti-Trump is Roseanne actually, and more about the fact that even though there was this perceived backlash, 18.1 million people still tuned in. Yeah, and that says something. I think regardless of what the media wants to say in the left-wing media, I mean, the numbers and the stats speak for themselves. Personally, I find it kind of refreshing. Uh, Obviously, we'll see where the show goes, but I find it kind of refreshing to have maybe a primetime comedy show that kind of plays things from a more Trumpist supportive manner in terms of comedic antics because every other primetime comedy show lefties we like they're all left wing so what can we really get mad about we still have you know Stephen Colbert we, we still have Trevor Noah we still have Saturday Night Live we still have all of that so if another person wants to come into the ring and kind of portray their message from a more maybe conservative viewpoint or one a comedic message that pokes fun at the Democrats for once. I mean, I'm all for that. It's lighthearted. It's comedy. Yeah. Let's not get too riled up over all of this. Yeah. I mean, contrary to the to the view, I know that, so, on the other side of the aisle, you have Ira Madison, uh, the columnist of the Daily Beast, and he also, I think he's getting a show, on, or I think he has a show on Pod Save America, or, um, um, like, the Pod Save America Network. Crooked Media. Crooked Media. Sorry. Totally just escaped me for a second. And he came out with a, with a pretty good comprehensive thread that was shared a lot about... A lot of the things that Roseanne Barr in real life has said that's a little bit detestable. She's like, for instance, she's called the Parkland students crisis actors. Um, I know that, uh, I believe it was Jerry Dunleavy who, who re-opted some photos that Roseanne Barr did that were, like, Hitler-themed. And so, I mean, so she's like a problematic person, whatever. But this might be more of a Rorschach test than anything. Like, rather than assess the content of of what is actually the messaging behind Roseanne. Like, what are actually the intentions that the producers have? I think the fact that there is a place in comedy for an opposing view for something that isn't just left-wing liberalism is a good thing, and I think that it's good for America. Because, I mean, we are losing our shared sense of, fo- of social fabric, and we can debate out the differences and the specifics, and I'm sure I could go on for 60 minutes just on my anti-Obamacare rant, but that's not necessarily... And that's pressing from an economic perspective. And these are important issues. But what we need more than anything at this critical moment are for Americans to find something to laugh about again together. Some sort of shared culture. Because everything is is a battlefield. The NFL is a battlefield. The Oscars are a battlefield. Buying a Keurig versus buying Papa John's pizza is a battlefield. So isn't it nice that there's one thing that's no longer a battlefield? Yeah, I mean, it used to be sports that brought everyone together, but even that's become divisive. So I think you have to find a common ground when you can and be amicable when you can and and not take things too seriously. I think any political jest that is made nowadays um, is taken to the most extreme and serious degree when, let's just remember, it's a joke, everyone, all right? Like, (laughs) everyone's got to take the chip off their shoulder and let their guard down a bit, but... 
you know, as much as, as the left criticizes the right, then the right can't get mad, um, or the left, rather, can't get mad when the right criticizes them and vice versa. Anyways, though, we have to go get on with our Fridays. I know that my week still isn't even done yet, unfortunately. However, as always, guys, um, please toss us a uh, follow or a subscription on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, toss us a rating or a review. We really we read all reviews or comments, and we really take those to heart. So anything that you guys agree or disagree with us on or anything you want to see have happen with the political pregame in the future, we are totally receptive to. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Tiana the First and at Avery Hogarth. Thank you, guys. <laughs>